worship you. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the Gospel of Luke. We will be in Luke chapter number 9 this morning, Luke chapter number 9. You may remember uh, about a year ago we started a study in the Gospel of Luke and we went through the Galilean ministry of Jesus. Coming back here for another series in the Gospel of Luke, no, we're not going to cover the same ground, but we're going to pick up where we left off. And this study is going to be called The Journey to Jerusalem because really from Luke chapter 9 to Luke chapter 19, we are getting in slow motion the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem, his journey to the cross. Follow along as I read our, our text this morning. Luke chapter 9, we'll be picking up in verse 51, Luke 9, verse 51. I want you to hear the word of the Lord. This is the word of God that we are, are listening to this morning, beginning in Luke 9, verse 51. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Even as Elias did. But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went into another village. And it came to pass as they went along the road in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I'll follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first, allow me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow, and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Every good story has its turning point. Right? You're reading a good novel, or you're reading a good story, and there's a point where, boom, there's that, that turning point, maybe halfway through, or maybe it's towards the end of the, of the story. We have turning points, of course, in history. The, the Battle of Salamis Bay, or the, the fall of Rome, the rise of the Reformation, the founding of the United States, Appomattox Courthouse. These are all turning points where, where the story took a sharp turn, where it could have gone one way, but then it goes uh, another. I heard a historian say, what was the turning point of the Civil War? He says, Appomattox Courthouse. Up to that point, it could have gone either way. Well, we come to Luke 9 and verse 51. This is the turning point in Luke's gospel. Up to this point, the focus has been on the Galilean ministry of Jesus. And we looked at that earlier in the year. If you want to go back and listen to those sermons, they're on the website. Jesus is ministering in Galilee, in Capernaum, in the synagogues. He's preaching and healing. But verse 51 says, It came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is now where the focus turns from Galilee to Jerusalem. As I mentioned a minute ago, the, the, the narrative slows down. It goes into slow motion as Jesus takes excruciating step after excruciating step toward Jerusalem toward the cross. So Jesus is getting onto the crossroad, 
the road that leads to the cross. And in another sense, this is the crossroads of the book. Everything before this has been about his ministry in Galilee. Everything after this will be about the cross. So here we are standing at the crossroads, and Jesus will take the crossroad on the way to our redemption. This road will terminate in Jerusalem, and there's this inevitability, this drumbeat of inevitability through these next 10 chapters. Over and over again, we're reminded Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Now, these next 10 chapters are not necessarily chronological. They're more arranged by theme, but they're united together by these. These are the events that happened as Jesus traveled south from Galilee on his way down to Jerusalem. He likely has a ministry in Perea, which is on the, uh, the other side of Jordan, the West Bank. Uh, or actually the east bank of Jordan. Uh, So there's some time there. It is a longer period of time than just the three days journey. But the point being, we are now moving towards the cross. That is why this morning we we sang Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, and his robes for mine, and these hymns that deal with with redemption and about the, the cross. Here's Jesus standing at the crossroads, and verse 51 tells us that he makes the deliberate choice. He sets his face, he sets his jaw to move towards Jerusalem, knowing what will happen there. He's deliberately choosing the crossroad, leading to his suffering and leading to our salvation. This is a decisive point. This is the decisive point in human history. Jesus Christ going to the cross for the sins of the world. Now, we're looking at two sort of chunks of Scripture, verses 51 to 56, kind of talking about what Jesus is doing, and 57 to 62, talking about the response of, uh, of us to this, this call. You see, there is a close link between Jesus' path and our path. We're called to follow him, right? And that's why we have this little section here at the end of the chapter where there's this call to follow, to follow. Jesus is going to the cross, and his followers are going there with him. That is the life of the Christian, taking up the cross to follow him. So his path is our path. His steps are to be our steps. So quite simply, here is the the call this morning. God is calling each one of us to walk the crossroad with Jesus, right? To walk the crossroad with Jesus. We're standing at the beginning of a new year, which happy new year, by the way. I love new year. It's like set goals. I'm all about goals and starting new things. It's exciting. We're standing at a crossroad this morning. Every every new year, every day, in fact, is a crossroad. Which way am I going to go, serve Jesus or myself? But the beginning of a year in particular, it's a little more pronounced. We reflect where we've been, where we're going. We're standing at this crossroad, and I am imploring you to take the road to the cross, to take the crossroad and walk down the road to the cross. So walking the crossroad is what this, this passage is about, Jesus moving towards Jerusalem. And we're going to see the requirements, what is entailed with, about, uh, when it comes to walking this road with Christ. Beginning in verse 51, we see that the crossroad, number one, requires courage. If we're going to walk the crossroad with Jesus, it requires courage. It required courage for Jesus. We sometimes get this idea that, well, Jesus is God's son, and he just went boldly and fearlessly, and this is true. But he is also genuinely human, and there is a genuine decision that he makes here in his human will to do the will of God. So it says, and it came to pass when the time was come. That's interesting language. It's just not like, hey, well, it was the next thing Jesus wanted to do. But there is, it's almost like there is a plan that is being worked. It's now the next thing on the divine schedule. This is, this is the language of divine fulfillment in verse 51. When the time was come, God's plan is being fulfilled. This is not just Jesus being like, well, I think now's a good time to go to Jerusalem. This is Jesus living out the will and the plan of his Father. 
He's not making it up as he goes, but he is carrying out a perfectly prescribed plan. By the way, everything that happened to Jesus on the road to Jerusalem and at Jerusalem, the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, the the murder, all of these things were part of the divine plan of God. We we see this in the apostles' preaching. All of this was predestined. All of this was prophesied. We we, We read Isaiah 53. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Nothing is happening by accident. His sham trials before the Sanhedrin, his flogging and crucifixion by the Romans, his murder is part of this plan that he is fulfilling. Over and over again, we're reminded in the Gospels, Jesus is fulfilling a divine plan. He always did that which pleased the Father. You see, even the ignorant evil of the Jewish leaders, so here they are, they don't don't see, they're blind to the fact that he's the Messiah. Even that fulfilled God's plan. Acts 13.37 tells us that because they did not understand God's word, they ironically fulfilled it. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't like the Sanhedrin was like, well, let's see, the Messiah needs to be crucified, so let's make it happen. No, they were, the, the very fact that they were ignorant of it, God used to fulfill his plan. It shows us a God who is pro, has providential control over history in ways that we cannot even begin to fathom. God is doing a trillion things at any given second, all of which are bringing glory to his name. Now, what a comfort that brings to you and me. Doesn't it feel like life is kind of out of control sometimes? Man, this Omicron variant, this is nuts. Where did this come from? People are sick and the world being chaotic and our lives just feeling like it feels like a a tale told by an idiot, to quote Shakespeare. It just feels like this random series of things that happen. When in reality, God is working out his plan, working all things according to the counsel of his will. That gives me a lot of comfort. I love the words of the hymn, The Perfect Wisdom of Our God. There's a phrase that says, Each strand of sorrow has its place within the tapestry of grace. Isn't that that awesome? All the threads that God is weaving together in our lives, he is weaving together a tapestry of grace. We're seeing the, the ugly underside of it, all the strings and threads hanging down. But what God is doing in our lives will bring him ultimate glory. So it's time for the, for the plan to be fulfilled. Everything that's going to happen at the end of the book, what's going to happen at Jerusalem, it says, the time was come, notice these next words, that he should be received up. This is the, these are the, this is the language of the ascension. The, this term, in its noun and verb form, is used a couple of times in the New Testament to refer Jesus ascending back to heaven. That is the destination. It's not just to go to the cross and die, but to rise again and to be exalted. The cross is simply a waypoint on the road to glory. What a reminder for us as well that suffering leads to glory and multiplies our glory. But now Jesus does not simply step back and say, well, it's the Father's plan. It's it's what he said is going to happen, so I'll just sit back and whatever God's going to do, God's going to do. He doesn't just say, let go and let God. Notice what Jesus does in verse 51. Because this is all true, and by the way, he knew this was true, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face. He put his eyes on on the goal. He didn't just wait for things to happen. Now, to set the face is an idiom to say he determined resolutely to go to Jerusalem. This is, again, fulfillment language. Go back with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. This is one of the servant songs of Isaiah, the servant of Yahweh, which initially is Israel, but Israel fails, and so there is going to be an individual who's going to come and succeed where Israel fails. And by the way, the passage Nate read was one of those servant songs. This is another one of these prophecies about Jesus, 700 and some years before he ever came. Isaiah 50, look in verse 6. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. 
I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Refers to the suffering Jesus underwent at the cross. That is what he is facing. That is what he knows is the Father's plan. Verse 7, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. In other words, yes, this is the suffering I must go through. God will sustain me and carry me through it. And because of that, I'm setting my face like a flint. With granite-like resolve, with unmovable determination, Jesus goes to the cross obeying the Father. He goes to the cross suffering for you and me willingly. He's not simply dragged along by the, just the inevitable pull of events. Look, when you read the, the story in the Gospels, doesn't it feel like stuff's just happening? And Jesus is just, man, here he is just caught up and being crucified by all these people who misunderstand all of it he's determining to do of his own will. This is courageous resolve, to set the face to go to your own death. He is setting his face to fulfill the Father's plan, which entails his death and his resurrection and his suffering and his shame. Very few of us, if we knew the suffering that we would face in our lives, would be like, fine, I'm going to go face it. Probably better off that we don't know, right? It's probably a good reason why God does not tell us everything would happen in our lives. We'd be like, that's terrifying. There's no way that I'm going to go through that. Jesus knew everything that he would go through. And he says, I'm embracing it and I'm going willingly so he could redeem sinners like you and me. That's the cost of our redemption, beloved. Does that not stir your heart? Does that not create worship in your soul? Worship is not just us coming together and we just sing and go through the motions. Worship is this delight in God because we have been redeemed. That's why we rehearse the gospel over and over again because it is the fuel for our worship and worship is the reason God created us. So Jesus took every step knowing what awaited him. You see, true courage It's not just, ah, I don't care what happens, but it's knowing what happens, and I think as John Wayne said, saddling up anyway, right? Here Jesus is knowing what is happening, and he saddles up anyway. It is born out of trust in the perfect plan of God. Now, there's the kind of bravado courage, I'm not afraid of it, the John Wayne kind of thing. Christian courage is different. Christian courage does not trust myself. It trusts a God who is in control. We believe in the sovereignty and the providence of God, that everything that's going to happen tomorrow and in the year 2022 has been written by a father who loves us, by a father who knows every hair on our head, by a father who knows about every sparrow that falls anywhere on the planet, by a father who holds every single atom together, by a father who sustains the galaxies that have not even been discovered yet. That's courage. That's where it comes from. Courage is the soft pillow on which we lay our heads, knowing that we're not in control, but God is. Now, we come along in verses 52 and 53 because this gives us a bit of a a foreshadowing of what's going to await Jesus. You say, what's this trip to Jerusalem going to bring? If you were reading the Gospels for the first time, you might be like, well, maybe they're going to receive him and he's going to become the king. Uh, Verse 52, he sent messengers before his face. Notice the repetition of the word face. We get some plays on words on the word face in verse 51, verse 52, verse 53. The direction and the, the focus he has. By the way, that phrase before his face is, is echoing the statement in Malachi that, that God will send a messenger before the arrival of Yahweh. It's John the Baptist, now it's the disciples, the messengers. 
And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. Okay, so here's Jesus. He's coming along with his 12 disciples, and there's a bunch of other people in his entourage. You don't just show up and be like, hey, we're here, guys. Like, put us up for the night. You've got to make some plans, right? You've got to book the reservations on Travelocity. Well, there's no Travelocity, so you send messengers ahead to make sure the village is ready to welcome you and your entourage. So they go into this village of the Samaritans. If you look at a map in the back of your Bible, you'll see Galilee's in the north, Jerusalem's in the south. Samaria is in the middle. These guys don't like each other. Verse 53, they did not receive him. Why? Because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Now, why is he going to Jerusalem? Yes, to die, but the, 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 uh, the, the reason as well is he's going there for the festivals. Right? There's going to be Hanukkah that's celebrated in Jerusalem. There's going to be Passover that's celebrated in Jerusalem. And the Jewish people would travel from all over several times a year to come to Jerusalem for these religious festivals. The Samaritans didn't like that very much. Now, who are the Samaritans? The Samaritans were individuals who were originally part of the northern ten tribes in the Old Testament. They get taken captive by the Assyrians. The Assyrians leave some of them in the land and bring some foreigners in to intermingle and intermarry with them to where there's no longer a sense of national identity. So racially, they were regarded as half-breeds. You're no longer purely Jewish. You have now intermarried with pagans. Additionally, they set up their own form of worship. Instead of worshiping at Jerusalem where God told his people to worship, they set up a rival center of worship at a place called Mount Gerizim. By the way, you can read John 4, Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman, and they have a conversation about this. They had their own version of the Pentateuch. They're like, hey, we've got our own little Bible. And so here they are. They're almost like their own version of Judaism. They have their own forms of worship, their own culture. And then you add to that centuries of hostility. There were points where Jewish kings in the intertestamental period went to war against the Samaritans and told them, convert to Judaism or we'll kill you. Right? That's not, that's not really a good way to establish friendly relations with your neighbors. So there's incredible hostility between these two groups. The Jews considered the Samaritans racial half-breeds and spiritual apostates, which, by the way, Jesus affirms. Uh, God's the one who says, worship in Jerusalem. Your form of worship is idolatry. The Jews would publicly curse the synagogues, in, uh, the, the, the Samaritans in their synagogues. They would pray. Like, they literally have a prayer. They get together for their synagogue service that the Samaritans would be cut off from eternal life. Right? Could you imagine get, coming to church and God, we prayed that the Samaritans would all go to hell. Like That's literally how much they hated these people. Samaritans were not simply responding in love and kindness themselves. They, in turn, despised the Jews, and as the Jews would travel south through their territory to go to these festivals, they would do everything they could to make their lives miserable. They would do everything they could to to harass them and to, to make sure that it was dangerous and uncomfortable and they didn't have a place to stay. So this is what is happening to Jesus. He's going to Jerusalem. They're like, "Mm, we don't like people who go to Jerusalem. No housing, no lodging for you. Jesus is rejected by the Samaritan. He's going to Jerusalem in obedience to God's law and God's plan. Jesus kept the law of God perfectly, including the Jewish festivals. So they won't let Jesus even stay the night. That's what's going on in verses 52 and 53. And we can look at that and be like, those Samaritans... Like, what a bunch of worthless people. They wouldn't receive Jesus. They reject Jesus. And perhaps the Jews were thinking, well, we, we wouldn't do that, except we know what happens at the end of the gospel. Jesus gets to Jerusalem to his own people, the Jewish people, who should have received him, and they don't just merely refuse lodging to him. Oh, no. They murder him. So both Jews and Samaritans together with the Romans in cahoots reject and murder Jesus. There's nobody here who is innocent in this story. All of us are guilty. We sang this morning, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. 
I think, who killed Jesus? Well, in one sense, it was my sin. In another sense, it was the Father who crushed him. In another sense, it was the Jews who betrayed him and the Romans who crucified him. So here he comes to Jerusalem to be rejected. Rejected on his first step going to the cross. To take the next step would require courage. For Jesus to walk the crossroad required courage. Right? Every step, courage, depending on the Father's plan, the Father's will. Now, the same is true for you and me. If we're going to follow Jesus on the crossroad, it's going to require courage. It's going to require that we have such a fear of God that we do not fear people. Right? We all struggle with the fear of man, of, oh, what do people think of me? And what do they say to me? And I hope they like me. And that is nothing, nothing less than idolatry. That needs to be driven out where we have a greater regard for God and a greater fear of God than we do of man. Being a Christian, being a genuine Christian who walks the crossroad is going to require courage. Courage to face down the attacks of culture. Courage to experience the same kind of rejection that Jesus faced as he walked the crossroad. And maybe you find yourself timid. You say, I'm not, I, I'm not a coward, cowardly person. When was the last time you witnessed? When was the last time you went out of your way to have a spiritually significant conversation with someone, maybe even just another Christian. I don't want to be seen as a weirdo. I'm just going to tone it down a little bit. What if we were bold and unashamed? What if we were courageous in walking the crossroad with Jesus? So the crossroad requires courage. It required it for Jesus. It requires it for us. But secondly, walking the crossroad requires something we would not actually think goes along with courage. Here's courage. Secondly, it requires compassion. Isn't that interesting that those two things go together? Courage to face rejection, but also compassion towards those who do reject you. Look at verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they see this rejection, these Samaritans being like, we won't let Jesus stay the night. They said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and rebuked them. Verse 56, they went to another village. The disciples' reaction to this rejection of Jesus is immediate sort of anger and hellfire and brimstone. They're not really responding with a whole lot of compassion, but Jesus is giving us the motto for how we ought to walk the crossroad. Walking the crossroad does not merely require steely courage. It also requires gentle compassion. And let me tell you, it is humanly impossible to have both of those qualities. We tend to do really well on the whole, like, courage things. Like, oh, I'm going to be courageous, and then we're jerks to people, right? And we probably know some people like that. Like, yeah, they're really courageous, have a lot of convictions, but, man, where's the gentleness? Oh, we're gentle and compassionate, but we're big jellyfish, right? You just get pushed over by whatever people want. Jesus calls for us to do both, right? To have a tender heart and a tough hide. So in response to this, what is nothing short of racist rejection of Jesus, James and John want some supernatural retaliation. They're like, this, we, we love Jesus. How dare these people reject Jesus? God, nuke him, fry, fry him, fire from heaven. Now, they think, we've got some pretty good Old Testament uh, grounds for this. This is as Elias did. 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah's coming along, and uh, the, the king of Israel is sending soldiers to go arrest him. And the first soldier, group of soldiers come to arrest him, and he prays, and boom, fire comes from heaven and, and, and fries them. And it happens a couple of times. Uh, it's just God's judgment on this nation that has rejected him. So the disciples are like, Jesus is kind of like Elijah, so he's already done these Elijah-type things earlier. So why not do something really awesome, Jesus, fire from heaven and fry these people? 
They're pretty zealous. As far as they're concerned, this rejection of Jesus deserved a fiery death. By the way, does the rejection of Jesus deserve fiery death? It, it does. And it might have been incredibly satisfying to their ambition to watch an entire village be incinerated. Right? We, we find out earlier that these guys have ambitious hearts. Uh, James and John, they want to sit at the right hand of Jesus, right? They, they want to have prominence. They want to have power. We well, see just back in verse 46, just look up there with me. And there arose a reasoning among them which of them should be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him and said, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you shall be great. Verse 49, and John, same guy, answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out demons in thy name, and we forbade him because he followeth not with us. These guys already have an attitude of, we're really important, and people who aren't with us aren't quite as good as we are. They still haven't quite gotten the message. But at this point, they've spent quite a bit of time hanging out with Jesus, hearing him preach. They should have learned Jesus' heart at this time. Jesus' heart was to save sinners, not to destroy them. John 3, verse 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The mission of Jesus was a rescue mission, not a retribution mission. Just back a few pages in, in Luke chapter 6, they had heard Jesus as he, as he preached Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. They'd heard Jesus say that. They had heard Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 27, say that I'm going to go, earlier to that, I'm sorry, I got the wrong verse, saying that I'm going to go to the cross. They had heard Jesus tell them that they ought to receive people as a little child. The teaching of Jesus should have expelled this kind of desire for judgment from their hearts. See, they had lost sight of the heart of Jesus. They, they weren't in sync with the heartbeat of Jesus, which was to save. See, the very fact that Jesus was trying to stay the night in a Samaritan village was an overture of grace. Normally, Jews would just go around Samaria. We're not even going to try. The fact that Jesus said, I want to try and stay the night here shows that Jesus had a concern and a love for these people. Indeed, as you read on through the section, in the very next chapter, Jesus will tell a famous story about a good Samaritan. Right, who, who, who loved God and loved God's law. In Luke 17, there will be ten guys who are healed of leprosy, and the only one who comes back to thank Jesus, who? A Samaritan. He has a heart for all peoples, not just the Jews. He's not ethnocentric. The disciples missed that fact. They missed the fact that he had come, according to, to Luke chapter 4, to release the captives from bondage, to open the blind eyes, to proclaim the year of liberty to those who are oppressed. I think probably what's also going on here, the disciples forgot their own hearts. They forgot Jesus' heart to seek and to save, but they forgot their own hearts. We, we saw their, their, this attitude of arrogance. They deserve judgment. They deserve fire. But they forgot that so do we. So do we. They forgot their need for Jesus' grace and became self-righteous, and so were eager to fry other people. They forgot they, no less than the Samaritans, needed Jesus' grace and compassion. They forgot that they were more like the Samaritans than unlike the Samaritans. Did the Samaritans deserve fire from heaven? Undoubtedly, yes. But so did James and John. 
Sodom and Gomorrah deserve God's fire from heaven, but so did Abraham. Right? Your lost neighbor deserves eternal hell, but so do you. So do I. They forgot that need. You see, when we forget who we really are and begin to think that I'm better than other people, we lash out in this attitude of judgmentalism. Self-righteousness is always proud and always harsh. Self-righteousness, I don't struggle with this, but you do. I can't believe that you would struggle with some sin that I don't struggle with. Just because you sin differently than I do, I'm going to bring out the canons of my judgment and blast away at you. When we think we're better off than our kids or our coworkers, we're inclined to lash out in self-righteous pride. When I think I'm better off than my spouse, I speak down to her, right? When I think that I'm better than my spouse, I nitpick at him, right? These are the responses of self-righteousness when we lose sight of our own hearts. What is Jesus' heart towards repentant sinners? He's gentle and lowly. He beckons, he welcomes those who come to him with their brokenness and their sin. So what does Jesus do in verse 55? He turned and rebuked them. So here they are walking down the road, disciples behind Jesus. Jesus whirls around on his heels and immediately rebuked them. Now here's the thing about that word rebuked. This is the same word that's used over and over again when Jesus rebukes demons. It's the same word that's used when Jesus turns around and says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. This word rebuke suggests to us that he is saying your attitude is absolutely satanic. This desire to see wrath unfold uh, down on these people and your desire to just see them fried and sent to hell is not of me. That is not my heart. He hears their inflammatory remark. He turns around and he rebukes them sharply. Their harshness was sinful. Their self-righteousness was satanic. And I think part of this is they still believe that Jesus would establish an earthly kingdom through external means. They don't understand the centrality of the cross and the spirituality of the kingdom and that the kingdom of Jesus is not about him getting rid of the Romans and getting rid of the Samaritans and establishing this kingdom on earth. It's about that which is eternal. Their attitude was out of step with his plan to redeem. You see, when we understand the plan of redemption, we understand the gospel, beloved, The gospel is not simply what saves us, it is what shapes our thinking. When you understand the gospel, it shapes the way that you respond to those who wrong you. One of the surest signs that you have understood the gospel is that you respond like Jesus responded when you were wronged, right? The gospel says, what they have done against me is not as bad as what I've done against Jesus, Right? Their sin against me pales in comparison against my, to, to my sin against God. The gospel requires us to see our sin as primarily vertical and deadly serious and eternally serious. Compared to the petty slights that happened to me, there is no comparison, so I ought to be ready to forgive. Jesus' attitude of forgiveness finds ultimate expression later on at the end of this gospel where he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, even as he is being pinned to a cross by Roman spikes. If we understand the gospel, it changes the way that we respond to people who reject us. There is no place in the heart of a Christian for this kind of attitude of harshness, this kind of bitterness, this unforgiveness, this condescending self-righteousness, this overweening pride. The gospel ought to expel it. Now, the reality is we struggle with this, isn't it? That's why we need to come back to the gospel over and over and over again, because the gospel reminds us, you didn't save you, Jesus saved you. You didn't contribute to your salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. 
You're not better off than other people. You're dead in trespasses and sins without the work of the Spirit of God in your life. Their attitude was out of step with the mission of Jesus. At the end of the section, over in Luke 19 and verse 10, Jesus tells us what his mission is. Luke 19, verse 10, this is the, the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus says, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. I've come to seek and to save, to seek out sinners who aren't even looking for me and to save sinners who could not ever find me. Earlier in the gospel, in Luke chapter 4, in his very first sermon in the synagogue, in Luke chapter 4, in Nazareth, verse 18 and 19, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That's his mission. They lost sight of his mission. They lost sight of his heart, and the result was harshness. So here's a question. Do you find yourself responding in harshness and anger to people around you? Find yourself lashing out in pride and self-righteousness. It tells me at least one thing about you. You have forgotten the gospel. You've forgotten the heart of your Savior. You need to get back into the Word of God. You need to, to, to gaze upon the heart of Jesus as it is revealed in the Gospels. And you need to worship that Jesus and admire that Jesus. Because here's what happens. We begin to be like that which we admire. Right? If we admire people who are angry and mean and harsh, we begin to say, well, I'm going to be like them. Because what? Imitation is the greatest form of admiration. But if we admire a Jesus who's gentle and lowly and loving and accepting and welcoming and calling sinners to repent, then we will begin to be like him. Now, that is not to at all denigrate his holiness. He will indeed judge sin. He is coming back one day to deal with all sin and rejection against him. But do not lose sight of his heart to call sinners to himself. So how do you respond to those who reject Jesus? What is your attitude towards your Buddhist co-worker? What's your attitude to that Muslim family who just moved into your neighborhood? How do you respond to godless politicians in your heart? What's your attitude towards unsaved family members who want nothing to do with God? Do you fear them as your personal enemies and secretly wish that they would just go away? We won't say fire from heaven directly. That's a little too honest. We sort of wish they weren't here. They were somewhere else. They were in a different country, a different place. They weren't here or they were different. Or do you love them as souls for whom Christ died? Do you love them as sinners whom Christ invites? Do you love them as individuals made in God's image? You cannot simultaneously fear them and love them. Right? Fear. Oh, I'll get away. Love says I want to reach out. Would you rather see the lost obliterated than transformed? Would you rather call down fire than extend grace? You see, walking the crossroad with Jesus requires compassion. So it requires courage because we will be rejected, but it requires compassion because Jesus has a heart of compassion. We're called to be like him. Now, just to note, I don't want you to get the idea that I'm saying Jesus is this big pushover who won't judge sin. Just look down on the next chapter in verse, chapter 10, verse 13. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you, they would have a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shalt be thrust down to hell. 
Jesus was not afraid to proclaim the wrath and judgment of God, but it did not come from a heart that was harsh or that was like, man, I love just frying people. But there's a note of sorrow as he declares this. But in the final scene of our passage today, we find out that the crossroad not only requires courage, it not only requires compassion, finally it requires commitment. It requires commitment. As Jesus walks down the road, verse 57, he encounters three people who have some desire to follow him but aren't willing to agree to the terms and conditions of discipleship. They want to write their own terms and conditions. They want to negotiate. It came to pass as they went in the way, this is important, on the road to the cross. Jesus is going to the cross. He's not calling people to go somewhere where he himself has not gone. A certain man said to him, Lord, I'll follow thee whithersoever thou goest. This man, for all intents and purposes, I think is is sincere, is genuine. We find out in the parallel account in Matthew that he's a scribe. I mean, he's willing to lay aside the dignity of being a scribe, a group of people who didn't really like Jesus. There, There is a desire here to be with Jesus, to follow him. But it's shallow. I'll go with you anywhere. I'll go with you everywhere. doesn't understand what that entails. Jesus sets him straight in verse 58. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He's saying the crossroad requires, requires commitment. There are demands to being a disciple. There are real demands and requirements of being a Christian. It's more than just check your, your name on a card or I, I raised my hand one time in a service and went on with my life. It is a life of repentance. It demands commitment over even comfort. Commitment over even comfort. So Jesus says in verse 58, hey, buddy, if you follow me, you're going to be, you're going to be homeless. The, the path that I'm walking, I don't have a house. I don't have all of the stuff that other people would have. I'm depending on the hospitality of strangers, and as we just saw, sometimes that won't be forthcoming. Your comfort takes a second place to your commitment. Now, he is not saying that all Christians need to be homeless. Uh, there were some people in church history who said, man, if you're going to be a real Christian, sell everything you have, move into a monastery. He's not suggesting that. But what he is saying in our priorities and our commitment, our commitment to Jesus is higher than our commitment to comfort. We are addicted to entertainment. We are devoted to comfort in our land. And if things make us uncomfortable, man, it's just, uh, we lose our minds over it, right? It gets a little hot or it gets a little cold, and it's just like, ah, we're gonna, if we didn't have air conditioning, what would we do? And I'm, by the way, I'm thankful for air conditioning. We don't do well with discomfort. What happens when comfort comes on a collision course with our commitment to Christ? What wins out? Right? What wins out when these two things collide? To follow Jesus as a disciple, to be a Christian, means joining Jesus in his life and his death and going to the cross. Do we understand that following Jesus means our comfort must take a back seat? Now, here's a very simple test. You have a decision between sleeping in an extra hour or spending time in the Word of God. What's going to win out? I've got a decision between, you know, I'm just going to stay home from church today. It's been a long weekend and just kind of... Now, if you're sick, by the way, with all this stuff going on, stay home, right? Those of you who are watching who are sick, thank you for staying home. We don't want what you got. But there's all kinds of dumb reasons we have for staying home. I stayed up too late last night, and it's just inconvenient. And, 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 you know, coming back for an evening service, gathering with God's people, something that would require me to to inconvenience myself even mildly, telling me that comfort is moving up in our priorities above our commitment to Christ. So many ways that this comes out in our lives. But what is more important, your comfort 
or your commitment to Jesus. This man did not understand the level of commitment that Christianity requires. And by the way, I'm not just talking about a higher echelon like, well, you can be kind of a, you know, a triple-A level Christian, but if you'll be big leagues Christian, there's not, little, there's not different leagues of Christianity, right? There's either you're a Christian or you're not. You either follow Jesus or you don't. You're either on the crossroad which leads to life or you're not. Right? This is not, well, if you want to move to the next level, the next quantum level of Christianity, well, then you'll, then you'll really follow me. Now, if you're going to follow me and you're going to have eternal life, Jesus comes first. Here's a second demand in verse 59. And he said to another, follow me, be following me is literally the original, it's a present tense. This is not just a one-time decision, but it is a way of life, of following Jesus on the, on the path of repentance and faith. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. So this man has, a, again, a very reasonable sounding excuse. Let me first go bury my father. Right? That's a very reasonable thing. This, is a, this would have been a duty, which, by the way, the second demand is following Jesus requires devotion over even duty. In Jewish law, burial of the dead was hugely important. They had a high regard for the body, and rightfully so. The body is made in the image of God. So seeing a body desecrated or seeing it dealt with in the way the pagans dealt with it was unconscionable. They would treat the body with dignity and bury it. That flows out of a Christian theology of the body. So for the Jewish people, burying the dead was an act of piety. The the rabbis wrote this, He who is confronted by a dead relative is freed from reciting the Shema, from the 18 benedictions, and from all the commandments stated in the Torah. In other words, it is so important, you could even violate the Sabbath to bury the dead. Like this This is one of the highest duties of showing love and devotion. After all, does not the Ten Commandments say, Honor your father and mother? Right? Giving your father or mother a proper and dignified burial is an act of honoring them. So this is a, apparently a very reasonable claim. Let me first go and bury my father. The problem here is not that the man wanted to bury his father and he wanted to honor his father and mother. Is that word first. This is not just chronology, I want to do this, then this. This is about delay. Jesus, I'll follow you at a later date. Right now I don't want to do it. There's something that is more important to me. Many commentators have pointed out there's no indication that the man's father was already dead. After all, if his father were dead, what is he doing on the road to Jerusalem, right? You don't, you don't go on pilgrimages if your dad is dead and go on a long vacation like, ah, oh, you know, dad just passed away. I'm off to go to the Caribbean. Like, you, you, there's things that are done. There, there, there's, there, there are priorities. So this, this man is making an excuse. He's saying, yeah, follow you, Jesus, just later. My duty to my family is going to be more important than my devotion to you. I'll follow you later once my father dies. This is like saying, you know, once I get a promotion and things settle down in my life, then I'll, I'll, I'll put the priority on worship, God's word says. You know, once the kids grow up a little bit, then we'll, then we'll start doing you know, more in our walk with Jesus. Once I retire, then I'll have time to really study the word of God. When God takes away my cravings, then I'll quit the addiction. But I kind of like the addiction I have right now, so I'm going to wait for God to do that. When this happens, then I'll... Delayed obedience, beloved, is disobedience. doesn't matter how good your intentions are, but delayed obedience is disobedience. When I graduate, then I'll follow Jesus. Once I get married, then I'll think about sexual purity. Once I do this, then I'll start doing that. For this man, the temporal crowded out the eternal. So his duty trumped his discipleship and his devotion. 
Now, Jesus' response seemingly is very harsh. Let the dead bury their dead. It's like, whoa, dead people are going to bury each other? He's using, he's doing a play on words with the word dead. The word dead in the scripture can be spiritually or physically dead. What he is saying, hey, let those who are spiritually dead have those priorities in temporal matters. Let those who are spiritually dead bury those who are physically dead. Now, he's not telling this man, neglect your family, not at all. But what he is saying, I want to expose your wrong priorities. Those who think the way that you think, Jesus says to him, are spiritually dead and cut off from eternal life. That's strong language. Those who say something is more important than Jesus in a perennial, ongoing kind of way, I get we all have struggles in our priorities. We're like, man, got to refocus. But those who perennially, in an unbroken way, something's more important, are cut off from spiritual life. People who are just cultural Christians who just go through the motions say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Sobering words. Jesus requires utmost allegiance, an allegiance that supersedes every other duty. One of the ways that's expressed is in the life of our church. We have a line in our church covenant that says our commitment to this church will be greater than any other allegiance to institutions of, high, uh, of human origin. Right? That's a strong language. Well, yeah, we, I, so I'll be a member of Cloverleaf Baptist Church. That's what you're agreeing to, saying my commitment to the people of God has a higher place in my priorities than my commitment to my friends at work or to even my family or other. God, Jesus, his things come first. Now, the third demand comes right to that issue of family. And the third demand here, these commitments that Jesus requires, is you must have a commitment where faithfulness takes precedence over even family. Another said, verse 61, Lord, I'll follow thee. By the way, that's future tense. I shall follow you in the future again. There's delayed obedience. But let me first, again, there's that word, go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. A third traveler now offers to sign up with Jesus. But there are some terms and conditions in the small print, the terms and conditions that you scroll through and click that you read that nobody can read or understand. This guy's adding his own, trying to slip his own clauses into this contract. He's trying to negotiate with Jesus. Like, yeah, I'll be a disciple, but on my terms and not yours. I want to go first and say goodbye to my family. After all, following this rabbi around will mean literally being away from home. What could be wrong with that? After all, the Old Testament, again, Elijah calls Elisha. He's out plowing. He throws his mantle on him. Elisha says, okay, Elijah, before I follow you, let me go home. Say goodbye to my family. And Elijah let him, right? It wasn't wrong or sinful for Elisha to love his family and have a goodbye feast. Here's the difference. Elisha's heart was committed to following Elijah. We see that he actually burns the, the instru- instruments of his farming. He slaughters the oxen he's plowing with. I mean, he, he burns his bridges. He burns the ships. He, there's no turning back for him. This man, Jesus knows his heart better than he even knew himself. For one thing, this reasonable request revealed the man had a heart with wrong priorities, right? For another thing, Jesus is on a one-way trip to Jerusalem. The time to sign up was now or never. There was a decisive urgency where the man was thinking, ah, I'll, I'll make a decision later on. You don't understand. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. The time to follow me is now. The opportunity to repent and believe is now is the sense of what Jesus is saying to him. So Jesus exposes these misplaced priorities using a well-known proverb. He says, no one 
having put his hand to the plow and looking back as fit for the kingdom of God. Okay, now we've got a couple of things going on. Putting your hand to the plow, decisive act of grabbing the plow to start plowing your furrows in the field. The looking back is a present participle, which means it is an ongoing, staring over your shoulder the entire time. It's not just a quick glance to be like, hey, what's going on back at home? In other words, liken it this way. You're going to get in your car and drive to Pensacola, right? You get out on I-10. Except here's the one condition. You're going to do it while staring out the back window the entire time. Right? How, how's, that, how's that trip going to go? You know, bouncing off the guardrails, like when you've got the bumper rails up and you're bowling and it's all the way down. It's not going to go very well. You're going to be swerving all over the place. You're going to be getting out of, out, of the, out of the road. You may have a very dangerous accident, in fact. If you try driving, looking over the shoulder, Jesus says in the same way, if you try to serve me while gazing and having your focus and your affections on something else, you won't be able to, you won't be able to plow a straight line in the field. You will not be able to serve God effectively. It's not wrong to have a glance toward home, but it is wrong to have a gaze toward home. Paul says, set your affection on things that are above. Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So you can't drive to Houston while looking over your shoulder, and you cannot walk the Calvary road, the crossroad that leads to heaven, while having your affection somewhere other than Jesus. Jesus said such a person is not fit for the kingdom of God. He doesn't say is not fit to be effective in the kingdom, but is not fit for the kingdom itself. He says this differently in other places. Unless your righteousness shall exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a tall order. By the way, none of us have righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, and that's his point. He says it this way in John 3. Unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. For us to be fit for the kingdom of God is not something that, well, I'll try really hard to just love Jesus and to have righteousness and, and produce the new birth myself. It requires a work of God in your hearts. It requires redemption. It requires regeneration. It requires God saving us. And here's what happens when God saves you as a Christian. He's not simply changed your standing before him to where you're righteous in his sight, though he does. He's not simply changed your eternal address to where it is now, heaven. He actually gives us a new heart. And this new heart that he gives to us is one that loves God and one that will grow in love and affection for Jesus. So here's one of the ways you can tell whether or not you're a Christian. Do you have a new heart that is growing in love for Jesus and the things of God? Or is your heart still looking back longingly and lovingly at other priorities, even good ones? Say, well, man, it almost sounds like Jesus is saying the family is a bad thing. No, no, God ordained the family. The family is, is God's institution. We ought to love our families. His point is not to say, well, just forget family and divorce your spouse and leave your kids. But what he is saying is you are to love me so much that unless you hate father and mother by comparison, you're not worthy of me. You see, the gaze of our worship is not looking back over our shoulder at family, but is looking forward to Christ. Salvation means nothing short of repentance and a new birth. Salvation means nothing short than a new set of priorities with Jesus as supreme over everything, including family. Now, this may, be a shock, may be a shocking to you because if there's one thing we've gotten as evangelicals over the last 30, 40 years it's that family is really important. We're all about family values and go vote for family values and, and sign petitions for family values, and family is important. But family is not imp- more important than Jesus. In fact, if you make family more important than Jesus, you will not be able to love your family the way that you're supposed to. 
Putting your family before Christ is not loving. Here's what you're doing when you put your family before Christ. You're saying, I am looking to my family, to my spouse, to my kids, to give me ultimate satisfaction and meaning in life. Now think about this. If if you are looking to your spouse and saying, my spouse is the one who needs to satisfy me and make me happy and fulfill me and give me my identity, you will be a terror to be married to because you will be insisting that they provide something for you that only Jesus can give. And if you insist that your kids give you your honor and your worth and your value and display your brilliant parenting by their incredible obedience, you will demand conformity of your kids when you ought to love them. You will put pressure on them and manipulation on them and teach them to be secret and conniving rather than honest before Jesus. Let me say this. Loving family more than Jesus is not loving your family. It is hating your family. It is hateful to your family. It is selfish to demand from your family to take a place that only Jesus can fill. When we get our priorities right, when Jesus is uh, the supreme affection of our hearts, the greatest treasure of our souls, we won't hold on to our kids and our spouse as something that we, no, I don't take it from you. They won't become these idols that we insist on defending. Rather, we can enjoy them as gifts from God. I hear too often of parents where a child is, you'd be like, man, I want to I go follow Jesus and go be a missionary. I've literally heard parents say, my kid can be anything, but I better not be a missionary on the other side of the world. They've got to be close to me. Hey, they're not your kids, right? They belong to Jesus. Let them go and follow Jesus wherever he leads them. If God calls you, Timothy to one day go be a missionary, that would be awesome. We'll get to go visit him in like some cool exotic place. If God calls him to lay his life down as a martyr, yeah, I mean, it'll be tough, but man, glory to God, right, that you have a child who follows Jesus to that extent. Here's what I'm saying. When we love Jesus, first and foremost, family is able to be what it ought to be. Duty it has its rightful place. Your job's not what's giving you your worth and meaning and workaholic. No, it's, you enjoy it for what it is. Your comfort is no longer something that you need in order to be able to survive, but rather it has second place to your commitment to Jesus. That's what matters. And here's the beautiful thing. When Jesus is first place, when Jesus is the treasure of your heart, literally nothing can take that from you, right? Like... The air conditioning can go out, but you still have Jesus. Your family can move away, but you still have Jesus. You'll grow old one day, and you'll still have Jesus. And you'll die one day, and you'll still have Jesus. That's the beauty of this is you, as as Jim Elliott says, you relinquish what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. He says he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In fact, it's folly to do the opposite. So here we're standing at the beginning of 2022 at the crossroads. Maybe you've been walking the road of, well, comfort is sort of more important than commitment. Commitment's there, but it's just second place. I've been walking the road where duty, my job and things that are obligations, a little more important than devotion to Jesus. My family's kind of crept into a place where it's competing with faithfulness to Christ. We're standing at the crossroads. Jesus is beckoning you back onto the crossroad, back onto the path of following him. Now, walking down this road is going to require courage. It's not an easy road to walk. The Christian life is not easy, but Jesus walks it with you. Walking this road requires compassion rather than condemnation towards the world, a a, a reaching out and calling others to join you. And it requires commitment, commitment over even comfort and duty and even family. So my question to you this morning is this, is it worth it? These are high demands. These These are lofty requirements that we can't reach unless our hearts are transformed by the grace of Jesus. But is it worth it to give up everything to follow Jesus? Jesus, is it worth it to give up a living death 
to gain undying life? Is it worth it to surrender momentary pleasures for eternal joys? Is it worth it to give up sin in order to embrace heaven? Is it worth it to surrender myself so I can gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness? Is it worth leaving the manure pile of sin to sit at the table of the king? And the answer is yes, a thousand times yes. It is worth it to walk the crossroad with Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here at the crossroads deciding, do I want to walk that? Do I want to become a Christian today? Let me urge you, not just with, well, you better become a Christian or else, to say it is worth it, though it is hard, to pursue Jesus. It is worth it, it is worth it, and it is no sacrifice to walk the crossroad, to follow Jesus to the cross on the waypoint to glory. So, beloved, put your sandals on this year, and let's take one step after another in the footsteps of Jesus walking the crossroad with him. Father, we bow to you. May it be our heart's desire today to walk the crossroad with Jesus.